You listen to 247 Real Talk. This is your host, Julian Perry. For this episode, I have a guest by the name of Jamie Alcroft. We will be discussing several interesting topics, and most importantly, about organ donor. We'll be right back. So good evening, Jamie. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being a guest on 247 Real Talk. Glad to have you here. Julian, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, I think the honor uh, is all mine, and I know it will be in this in this conversation because... Oh, yeah. In my oh, poli- yeah, just wait. Just wait. <laughs> um, I get, my audience has no clue what they're in store for, so... I'm just going to say away we go when, you know, let's start it off by you telling me and my audience, you know, start it as, as far back as you want, because I know it's a really interesting story. Tell us about Jamie Alcroft. Well, well, I, uh, I was raised in Ohio and New Jersey and England. And uh, then I went to high school in, in New Jersey, like I said, which was close to New York City. And I got a taste of the theater in New York city. And, uh, I started doing a little bit of theater in high school and I got the bug, but, uh, of course my dad was you know, saying, I got to do business, got to do business, man. You can't, you can't be an artist. You gotta do <laughs> and I just, I fought it and I fought it. And, and, uh, I went to school, but I studied radio and television arts and, uh, I didn't do much, any theater in, in college, uh, really late, the later years of college. But um, then uh, I got a job in Wichita, Kansas, uh, being the uh, the, uh, ed- the educational director for a symphony orchestra, and I thought, "Wow, what an interesting offer to go out to the middle of the country, Wichita, Kansas. Never been there, and uh, run a junior programs for symphony orchestras for a couple of years." And it was a grant from the government when the government gave grants for artists willingly. And uh, it was for $8,000, actually. This was 1971, 1971. And uh, I lived very comfortably on $8,000 in Wichita, Kansas in 1971. Thank you very much. And um, then I... And it turned out to be more of an office job than I wanted it to be. And I just bailed. After two years, I bailed. I bought a truck. I drove to Colorado, got a job on a horse ranch. (laughs) I I just really tried to get out of that that whole business world as as far as I could go. And um, then uh, when the landlord asked me how I was going to pay rent for the winter, um, because I had worked as a ranch hand and a, a cowboy kind of wrangler uh, for him, but winter was coming in, and and uh, I said, "Well, I don't know." And he said, "Well, I need an apprentice. I'm a silversmith, and I need an apprentice." So I apprenticed to him, and I became a silversmith. And one thing led to another, and I had a store in Silverton, Colorado. I had an outlet in Aspen, Colorado. 
selling my sterling silver jewelry. And then somebody offered me a store in Key West, Key West, Florida. Wow, I'd never been there. So I went to Key West, Florida and <laughs> did jewelry for a couple of years. And, and then I got bored again and I went up and I, uh, I got a job as the morning guy. I, I, I went into the, to the program manager at the radio station, Key West, Florida. It was the rock and roll radio station in Key West, right? The only one. And uh, Key West, you got to understand, is an island about one mile by three miles large. So it was a little AM station at the top of a hotel broadcasting to the entire island. And uh, I, uh, I got a note one day, said, you must be one of the funniest men on the island. I'm the other one, signed Mac Dryden. And I got together with him and to skip ahead, we started doing shows and uh, comedy reviews in Key West. And then we started working at the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale. And the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale at the time, this was 1979. And they were bringing down four or five comics every week from New York. So we would drive up from Key West five hours to Fort Lauderdale. And we would work with these comedians named Paul Reiser, Jerry Seinfeld, Rick Overton, Carol Liefer, Dennis Wolfberg, Larry Miller. <laughs> All of these great comedians were coming down from New York and working at this little club in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, they told us that we were good enough for New York. So wait a minute. So next chance we had, we drove to New York a year later. Uh, we came out to California to do our first Tonight Show. Okay, and so wait a minute. Let's Mac pause. And Jamie was born. Let's pause. Yes, let's pause. Mac and Jamie was born. We were off and running, and we were hitting the comedy clubs in New York and killing, and we were hitting the comedy clubs in L.A. and and just having the time of our lives. And so let's let's pause no there for a second. In the world, let's pause there for a second. Me? Let's pause there for a second. Let's uh, because okay. that's a that's that's. That just that segment alone is an amazing part. So, because what I find amazing about that part of your story so far is that you know I've I've read up about a few comedians who've come up, and you know a lot of those comedians are like you know they knew very early in in, in life that's what they wanted to do, and they wanted to be a comedian. You had an assorted uh, uh, array of of jobs, and and. I, I guess it's it, we can suffice to say that comedy was just an inherent talent that was effortless for you. I I believe it was uh, the first time I got up on stage. But however, now this is the, this is a good lesson for anybody who wants to be a comic. First type of time I got up on stage, I did fifteen minutes and killed, just killed. Okay, fast forward about a month later, I get up on stage again. I did fifteen minutes and bombed <laughs> so the hardest part about getting up on stage is that third time it's not the first time or the second time it's the third time <laughs> and the third time worked but so then you're like, you're, you're at the point now out, but I, I you know i always wanted to be johnny carson okay when i was a little kid yeah okay. oh yeah i always wanted to be johnny carson so I thought that would be the coolest job in the world. So tell us now, you you said tonight's show, right? I beg your pardon? You said tonight's show. 
Yeah, on the Tonight Show. I wanted to be Johnny Carson on the Tonight Show. No, but you actually Tonight saying that you you traveled to California? That's where I, I interrupted you. Oh yeah, so we got out to California and um, we came out to do a date on the Tonight Show, and we went down to Sunset Boulevard and bought suits and clothes to wear on the on the set, and and we went on there, and it was one of the biggest thrills of my life standing behind that gold curtain and hearing Johnny Carson say your name and knowing that millions of people (laughs) were going to be seeing what you thought was funny. (laughs) But fortunately audiences had proved to us that the material we were doing was funny. And, uh, you know, you can't go on the tonight show or any of those shows uh, Kimmel or anybody, anybody without having proven material. I mean, they're, they're talent scouts going to the clubs. And they check you out and they work with you on your set and say, well, you know, maybe you could do this or do that. And they guide you along and you get that little four minute hunk together. And that four minute hunk means the world to you. So where'd you go after Johnny Carson? Because that, you know, some people might want to say, I went to the Tonight Show, I, uh, Johnny Carson introduced me, and that was the pinnacle of my career. But you sound like, you know, there's a lot more, so tell me. Oh, heck yeah, man. I wanted to sit down on the couch with him. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to just do the set. I wanted to, I wanted to wave us up and sit down and then have, us, have him ask us over to his house after the set, you know, and because, uh, you know, he was a notorious poker player and he and Steve Martin and Billy Crystal and a guy named Steve Lansbury. You know who Steve Lansbury is? No. He played a character on an old sitcom called Taxi. Oh, wow. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I remember that. Anyway. Yeah. They all used to play poker together apparently once a week. So that was pretty cool. But I never got invited to the poker games. Um, no, Mac and I, after the tonight show, we were actually offered a, uh, ice show. Uh, we got a call from our agent at William Morris and said that Peggy Fleming, the ice skater had seen us on the tonight show and wanted us to be in her ice show at Harris Lake Tahoe. And I looked up Harris Lake Tahoe and thought, well, December and uh, January, a two month run in Lake Tahoe at Harris, I could go skiing every day. And so we went there and we did an ice show. I went skiing every day and every night, my partner and I, my comedy partner and I would walk out in golf shoes on the ice and do a half an hour of comedy in the middle of the Peggy Fleming ice show. And that's how we got our break at the casinos. And that's how I got my ski tan. Uh, I'd only have to put makeup on around my eyes to try to match my skin tone. (laughs) I looked like a raccoon. Did Uh, you end up on any other, um, any other show, uh, TV shows that, that were as huge as the tonight show? Uh, well, you don't get any bigger than the tonight show, but after that we were offered our own series. And uh, uh, we did a TV series. It was uh, half-hour shows. It was called Comedy Break with Mac and Jamie. 
we did 125 episodes, and it was all original sketch comedy. And we, this was in 1985, 1986, and we discovered a couple of actors who we had on our show as regulars, and their names are Jan Hooks, who was on Saturday Night Live and uh, unfortunately has passed away, and a guy named Kevin Pollack, who plays the grandfather in uh, Mrs. Maisel and uh, and has played uh, many, many roles in many films and great actor and great comedian. So I was uh, very proud that we could give those uh, those kids a, uh, a national audience. And uh, and it was a fun show to do. It was exhausting, but it was a fun show to do. And Carol Burnett was a big fan. And that's all I care about. <laughs> If she was a if she was a fan, I'm cool with me. Yeah, <laughs> I can understand that. So what happened next? <laughs> oh, geez! After that, we uh, we we did two seasons of that, and then they tried to cut cut our writers, and uh, it was it just it just didn't feel right to do another season. So. Um, we moved on and we started opening for Tony Orlando and Lou Rawls and opening for all these acts at casinos at Caesars Palace. And uh, we'd go to Atlantic City and work with Eddie Rabbit and the Platters and the Temptations. And man, I'm standing backstage with the Four Tops and I'm in heaven because they're my generation of music and uh, uh then uh, we got asked to be Diana Ross's act, opening act. And so we toured with Diana Ross for six years as her opening act. And the living, it was great life. You spent a lot of time at home. You'd go out on the road with Miss Ross and the, her orchestra. And uh, she flew, flew us everywhere, never had to ride on a bus or anything. And uh, it was it was really nice. She was really great to us. She was a, she's a wonderful woman. She really is. Wow. Well, that, that is, I mean, the names that you're calling are, are, are most of them I know. And, and, and I'm a fan of, of what we call oldies, you know, the four tops and spinners, the temptations, uh, to just mm-hmm. think that you actually were in the presence of these people. I mean, you know, the closest I've come to it is seeing them, seeing old shows on TV. So, um, I I'm was sure, hanging out with them, man. Yeah, no, my audience would be thrilled to hear that they actually get to listen to a podcast with someone who has real life, uh, you know, recollections of, of of being with such amazing people. But and then I, I can imagine at well, this point we're you know into the episode. I can understand my audience probably saying, "Well, you know, you you talked about the life of Jamie Alcroft and." And and you said something at the end when you introduced him about, you know, organ donors. And what does one have to do with the other? So keep going. <laughs> I'll get to that. But I got to tell you this. Uh, this, this is a great story. Um, and I, and I, don't, I don't think I've ever told this to anybody uh, on the air. And I hope Miss Ross doesn't get mad at me for doing this, but. Okay, so hold on. Before you start, you know, all of my 247 Real Talk audience, you're about to hear an original from Jamie Alcroft, never heard before on any radio station, any show. Go ahead, Jamie. I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> so we, we were opening for her and uh, got to, you know, be friendly 
uh, enough. In. But she always kept her distance. I mean, she was always Miss Ross. And uh, you couldn't call her Diana, even though it said Diana on the marquee. Uh, it was uh, Miss Ross all the way. But she, she came into our dressing room one night and she said, uh, hey, boys, I'm having uh, the band over for a swim party tomorrow at my place outside of town. And I'd like you to come join us. She said, I'm going to be cooking up some breakfast and uh, just come around 10 o'clock and blah, blah, blah. You know, she said, oh, yeah, great. Cool. So uh, she said, I'll have a car pick you up. She said, great. So the next morning, about 930, car picks us up. We go out to her place in the desert. And she's got this beautiful house with this beautiful pool. And she's been heating the pool. So it's steaming. And uh, I'm, I, I was the first, my wife and I were the first ones to get there. And Miss Ross is, doesn't have her hair done or anything. She's just kind of got up. <laughs> and she said, come on, come on. I got a bunch of people coming and I got a mess of scrambled eggs to make. She said, you want bacon or scrambled eggs? I said, oh, well, I'll eat the eggs. And she said, no. She said, I mean, she said to, to make. You want to make the eggs or the bacon? I said, I'll make the eggs. <laughs> she said, okay, I'll make the bacon. So I stood next to her for, oh, I don't know, half hour, 40 minutes, making eggs and bacon for all these people that were coming over. And then the band showed up. And, you know, musicians, no offense, uh, they're not all like drummers, but uh, <laughs> they came over and uh, they rolled in about noon crack of noon and uh none of them had brought bathing suits and uh, miss ross says why isn't everybody swimming and you know well, we didn't bring our bathing suits we don't have our bathing suits and she said i invited you to a swim party you don't have your bathing suit so she had a friend of mine who was there <laughs> go around take everybody's measurements for their bathing suits whether they wanted a speedo or boxers a two-piece or a one-piece or whatever. And she bought bathing suits for 50 people at that party. And about 45 minutes later, the guy shows up with 50 bathing suits. So we all had to go We all had to go swimming. Wow, <laughs> there wasn't any question. <laughs> and it was a cold day in Vegas. It wasn't one of those hot days. But the pool was heated. She heated the pool. Yeah. She wanted everybody to go swimming. So... You know, that was just it. That was it. That's a, that, that's funny. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, you, you get to cover so many things with that cooking eggs and bacon with that, you know, the icon, Diana Ross, and then, you know, I swimming. Know. I mean, you know, I, 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 I feel like a, like a celebrity now just being told the story. I don't know. <laughs> well, I was hoping she'd start singing with me, but she never did. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that would have been the icing on the cake. Her. No, she has to save her voice. But then, now dig this. Years later, Tracy Nelson, uh, Tracy Ellis Ross, who's on Blackish. Yeah, her daughter. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know the woman who plays the mother on Blackish? No, I don't look at the, the show, TV but I know Tracy series. Ellis from her, off her previous show with um with the four girls. Um, what was that called? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, Tracy at the time was in her late teens and she and her sister would come and see our shows and they would watch our shows. Now dig this. We're opening for 
Miss Ross for six years. We had to change the act. We had to put in something new. We had to try out something new. And a Vegas crowd is very different from any other crowd that you're working. So <laughs> we would try out something new and there'd be a knock on the door and it would be Miss Ross. And she'd say, uh-uh, boys, don't go changing nothing. And I would go, well, but we just thought, uh, uh. she said, if it, if it ain't broke, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And we said, okay, okay. Which is a lesson I learned from her because I always would sneak up to the lighting booth and watch her shows almost every night. So I must have seen her hundreds of times. And she never changed a song or a word or a movement. Wow. It was always the same. Whatever wow. works, works. Right. And and it's a show about showbiz icon teaching me a very valuable lesson that I took on in, in, in my comedy for years to come. Uh, whatever works, works. Not that I wouldn't change stuff, but you know, you don't try out stuff on a Vegas audience either. That was the lesson. Now, Tracy Ellis Ross was on the Kelly Clarkson show a couple of months ago. She was on with my daughter, a girl named Haley Kiyoko. She was on with Kelly Clarkson, and so was Tracy Ellis Ross. They were the guests. Wow. And my daughter says to Tracy, hey, Tracy, you know, you remember Mac and Jamie? You remember watching them when uh, they opened for your mom? She said, yeah. She said, well, Jamie's my dad. And Kelly Clarkson just howled. She had no idea. And thought, she just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. Wow. That, that, I mean, this is pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. That, so let me ask you a question. That's pretty cool. Tell me something. I love I love it when stuff comes around like that. Yeah. Ask me a question. Tell me, yeah. Tell me, out of all, I mean, you've called Seinfeld, you've called Diana Ross, Johnny Carson. I mean, yeah, any one of those are, you know, they're all icons. But if you had to, and, and this might be an on-the-spot question because somebody might get upset, but, you know, this is our show. If you had to say throughout your career, you know, who is the one star that you met that means the most out of all the, 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 the celebrities you met, who would that be? I think, uh, George Burns. Oh, come on. You can't tell me, Jamie, that you left out the story about George Burns. You didn't even mention him yet. That's, that's, Oh, you know, I'm speechless on that one. Tell me about George Burns. All right. Well, I, uh, I do an impression of George Burns in my act. <laughs> and, 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 and let me tell you one thing, Julian. Is it Julian? I, I, I yes. think it's Julian, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. He's, 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 he's one of my favorite characters to do. Well, I did him frequently on the show Comedy Break. And they dress me up and make me look just like him. And uh, <laughs> the producer of Comedy Break took the video of me doing George Burns into George Burns's office one day and said, look, I want you to see this kid doing you. Now, when I say kid, this was 30 years ago. I was 35 years of age. No, it, was, it wasn't quite 30 years ago, but it was a long time ago. And, <laughs> and he stands there and he watches me do an impression of him. 
And he doesn't say a thing throughout the entire two minute bit that he's watching. And he watches me do him. And the, the tape ends and he turns to the producer and he says, the kid's good, but I'm better. <laughs> <laughs> so the kid's good, but I'm better. And then, then I met him and he gave me a poster and signed it. I'm better. George Burns. Wow. Wow. So you, you, Jamie, I'm better. I've got, it got hanging in my living room. You, you have my prized possessions. You have so one of my prized possessions. Yeah. So, so you have so far, and I'm sure there are stories you have not told me yet, but you have, oh, yes, sir. You've had an amazing, amazing, um, a life in, in, in terms of amazing life, an yes. amazing career. Yes. And one of the most amazing things about my life is that, uh, I didn't realize it, but, um, something ran in my family called the widow maker and the widow maker is a heart attack. And as you might guess, uh, it's the type of heart attack that drops you right dead on the spot. John Ritter had it. Uh, many people had that famous run, runner. I, I should, I should have a list of the people who've had Widowmakers, because I had one on an airplane at 30,000 feet coming back from Seattle. I had my three kids with me and my wife wasn't with me and my kids were much younger and I had to deal with that and deal with the fact that I thought I was dying on an airplane. Um, uh, they, <laughs> it's quite a story, and it's all in my book, uh, as they say. Um, but anyway, as a result, they couldn't get me to the hospital for an hour and a half because I was on an airplane, and they had to emergency land in Portland and get an ambulance and this whole blah, blah, blah. And um, because of that damage... I had to live for 12 years with a pacemaker, which wasn't a bad thing. It was great. I got a, the pacemaker. You know what it is? It's a pacemaker defibrillator they put in your chest. Yes. Yeah, and it keeps your heart beating regularly. Yes, yes, I'm aware. And, of uh, but but I I spent the extra bucks, man. I because I I got OnStar, I got climate control, I got cruise control, <laughs> I got the whole thing on this pacemaker, right? So. Because I was working, because of the heart damage I suffered on the airplane, I was working on only 20% of my heart. Now, right now, you're pumping about 70%, and I'm pumping about 70%. But for 12 years, I was pumping 20%, and I felt it. I was still working with Mac. We were still doing cruise ships. Uh, we were doing 28 cruise ships a year at that point. It was hectic, but I kept up with it. And my heart just got more and more damaged, I guess, as time went along. And 12 years later, I go into my doctor's because I'm not sleeping well. And he measures my heart. He says, well, I don't like your number. I said, what do you mean my number? He said, you're down to seven. I was down to 7% of my heart function. He wow. looked at me and he said, we're going to have to get you a new heart. The impact of someone saying that to you was so devastating, but not devastating in a way of terrifying or anything like that. What it did was it completely eliminated 
any control I thought I had over my life. It, you know, you always, everybody's trying to grab control and everybody's stressing over this or stressing over that. Well, I always taught my kids, if you don't have control over it, don't worry about it. It's going to happen. Just let it happen and then deal with it when you can have control over the situation. That's and a, then when you have control, you can fret. You can so fret. let's pause well, there for I'll a second. You, Hang on, Jim. Let's pause okay. for it. Because number one, I want to, I want to, you know, add to that statement that you, it's very true because I can, I can say personally to you and my audience that I, I struggle over, that's something I struggle with and that, you know, I go through this in, in, I, I, uh, maybe a week ago, I mean, a few days ago for the last month yeah. or two, I've been dealing with, um, something that I've been trying to accomplish and uh, most of the parts of it, I didn't have control over and it, it caused such great stress that a couple of days ago oh. I said to my wife, I said, am I having a heart attack? She says, well, you got pain or anything? I said, no, but I got to the point where I'm standing in front of her. I'm about yeah. to pass out. I couldn't breathe. Okay. That's how, oh, that's sure how high the stress sure level got. Right. So you're absolutely correct yeah. because, you know, after everything passed and, you know, I kind of took it into perspective and it took, it took, it took me being fearful of what was about to happen to my body um, to, to gain uh-huh. the perspective that she's been trying to tell me for the longest while. Then she said the same thing you said, you know, stop worrying about things you can't control because th- those things mm-hmm. will, will, will cost you your life and you still can't control them. You know, um, yeah, the, moment, the moment that guy said you need a new heart, all the control just drained out of my body and left. It was like it was in a puddle on the floor. Right. But tell me something before right. we go, before we go on, ha- you said that it runs in your family. Did you have, do you know someone? Yes. Who else had it? My uncle uh, apparently died of the same thing, uh, a widowmaker. And my grandfather died of a widowmaker. And what it is, is when your left descending artery, which brings blood to your heart, it, it has a weak wall. And that weak wall, age 50, 60, eventually gives way. Because all of the pressure... I mean, you imagine the pressure your blood is under in your body. It's intense, man. And is there a way of that they could have diagnosed it before? I beg your pardon? Is there there a methodology, you know, a medical way of them diagnosing it? Let's let's say you decide to go into a doctor. There is now. Okay. There wasn't wasn't when I had the heart attack, which was in 2010. But 10 years later, there is a way to uh, diagnose that condition. Yes. Yes. And it's normally, you have to to ask the doctor specifically because what happens is the wall of the artery breaks. The body thinks that there's a heart attack. So it sends all the plaque in, in, in your body to plug up the hole in the artery and all the plaque plugs up the artery and stops the flow of blood to your heart. And that's when you drop dead. Okay, so but is it, it's it has it been is it something that's normally hereditary? Yes, apparently so. Okay, apparently so. I've I, I haven't done a, a lot of research on it, but from what I've been told by the doctors, because the doctors are my whatever they say is sacrosanct to me. So anyway, I needed a new heart, so I went down to Cedars Sinai, which is the top transplant hospital.
hospital in the world. I was lucky enough that I live in L.A., beautiful, sunny California, and I can go down to Cedars and just go to the emergency room and say, uh, my, my EF, which is ejection fraction, is down to seven. So 7% of my heart is working. I need to be admitted. And they just whip me here and whip me there and boom. Next thing I know, I was in the transplant ward and I was there for the next three months. And I finally was lucky enough to get a heart and a liver transplant. Apparently I needed a liver as well, not because of any damage I had personally done to it, but for 12 years that my heart was operating on 20%, it had damaged my liver. So I had heart-induced cirrhosis. I said, God, you mean I could have drank more? You're kidding me. <laughs> so, it, it, yeah, I feel, I feel gypped. So anyway, uh, I, 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 I just tried to make the best of it. And every day, and I thought, and that was all, uh, all Julian because I had lost control and admitted to it myself. And had accepted that about myself, that I had lost control, that my life was in everybody else's hands at this moment. My life was in everybody else's hands. And that teaches you to lose control, I'll tell you. And, and uh, so I just joked around with the nurses and the doctors and tried to make the best of it. When they said I had to wear a mask for a sterile procedure, I had this giraffe mask that I had under my pillow that I'd whip out and put on. And so they'd come in my room and I'd be wearing the scary mask and <laughs> and then they things like that. And we just had fun. I tried to have fun because I figured if I'm gonna die in this bed waiting for a heart, I'm gonna die laughing. Damn it. And so then I started keeping a journal of all the things, all the funny things that were happening to me. And uh and I started posting it on uh YouTube. Uh, not on YouTube, on Facebook, I'm sorry. And on, on FaceTube, I posted it. And um, it, it started getting me a following. And these people who I didn't even know were writing and they wanted to be my friend. They wanted to follow what I was calling the Tin Man Diaries. And I kept writing and writing and writing. And everybody said, oh, this should be a book, blah, blah, blah. So uh, three months uh, into my stay at the hospital, the phone rang. And they said, Mr. Alcroft, we think we have a heart and a liver for you. And it was a 46-year-old heart and a 46-year-old liver from a gentleman who had a motorcycle accident in Northern California. And I don't know who that person is. I just know that their heart and my liver is in my body. And if they had not had the compassion and the wisdom to fill out their donor card, I would not be alive. And they would not be living through me because every morning, I don't know what the guy's name is, but I call him Brian. And every morning I'd say, thanks, Brian, because it's another day that I'm alive because he filled out his donor card. He didn't mean to have a motorcycle accident, but he left a legacy, which will live on th through me and through my family forever. I mean, people... You know, people always want to leave something behind, you know, they're, oh man, you know, I, I want to be remembered for this and remembered for that and leave a legacy. There's no better legacy to leave than life. It, upon your death, if you can give life to eight people, which you can, 
you can give hope and sustenance to hundreds of others through tendons, skin tissue, and and uh, and a lot of people always say, "Oh, I'm too old. I'm too old to donate anything. Nobody wants any of them." Well, with your corneas, you can give eyesight to the blind, and it's kind of gross to talk about, but older skin is actually better than younger skin because it stretches more, and and uh, yeah, and it's better for the burn victims. So how long so ago was I've the surgery? A lot about this. I've also pardon me. How long ago was the surgery? Three years ago, it was twelve-hour surgery, uh, six hours for the heart, and then six hours for the liver. I am one of two hundred people in the United States with a dual transplant, and um, I just, you know, I've got a forty-six-year-old heart and liver. I'm going on seventy-two. Wow. I don't know whether to have a midlife crisis or get a reverse mortgage. <laughs> I'm so conflicted. <laughs> I just, I, I'm just. I'm I'm bamboozled by all this. So tell me something. Let's, let's over my head. I'm sure my audience will want to know because you were also you were the first. I mean, I, I many times when I have guests on my show and we get to, down to our conversations and they get to share their stories, you know, they constantly uh-huh. tell me, you know, how honored they are to be on my show, and I always tell them, no, I, it's my honor to have you, and that. That is, is, is such an example, especially, you know, we, we, with this show, you know, I've never spoken to someone. I don't think I've even met anyone who's had a heart transplant. And, and so if, if, <laughs> we, if, <laughs> so if we could, if we could slow down there just a little bit, I, I'm just curious and I'm sure my audience wants to know mm-hmm. once you, I, I mean, I don't know what the, what the, you know, the aftermath of the surgery is and what the healing is like. I think people would be a little interested if you can give us a snippet of, what it's like, and then oh. at what point you get back to some place where you feel normal, if there's such a thing. My goodness. Um, yeah. Um, you're in a coma, a, a medically induced coma, for three to four days afterwards. Um, your surgeons uh, are the same people that flew up to wherever my organs came from, but they got in an airplane and flew up to vet them to make sure they were going to be a good fit for me. And then they personally flew them back to LA and walked in the surgery in the OR and performed surgery. Uh, it was, it was just freaky. I mean, this one guy, he comes up to me, I'm laying on the table and I'm not out yet. You know, and he says to me, he says, listen, I just want to let you know that there is a chance of, uh, of stroke or high blood pressure. I said, for you or for me, <laughs> you know, I was trying to keep that sense of humor right up to the last minute because I also knew lying on that table, waiting to be put to sleep that when I was put to sleep, I might not wake up with new organs because sometimes it's just not a good fit. It's not what they thought it was going to be. Uh, the organs don't function. But my doctor told me that from the first stitch, from the first stitch, my heart started beating or his heart started beating. But now it's my heart that's beating. And um, so I woke up from the coma. And I was shouting, oh, sorry? What was it like going, because I had, I had one surgery in my life, nothing like that. Um, 
but twelve hours. You no, know, yeah. what was it like? I remember when mine was 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 kids play compared to what you're talking about. I mean, is somebody literally going to go into your chest and take out your heart and put another one in? And I remember even when I went through my surgery, and as they were putting as they were putting me out, I had you know first time in my life, and I had like these, these incredible fears. What was that? I mean, you 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 have such a a, a an, an amazing approach towards life and towards you know towards some, something I think it almost keep you young, keep that heart young because of how you know, your perspective. But what was it like at that moment? Because I remember how fearful I was. And like I said, it was nothing compared to what was it like to know you know you're about to have this this surgery and they're about to swap out your heart. They're about to cut me open like a Christmas goose. And they did. They start just below your larynx and they cut down to the middle, to the middle of your chest. Your, um, I don't know what it's called there, that little dent there. And then it goes out from to the left, to the right. And so I had 92 staples in my stomach and chest. When I came out of the coma, I was screaming, Konnichiwa, baby. Kanichiwa baby. Uh, and my my family was in the room and they actually have me waking up on video. <laughs> my daughter caught it on video. And oh, I was doped up and but but you know, they get you walking the next day and uh not the day, not the next day after the surgery, but about five days later, including the coma. And um then they get you moving, and I was home within four days uh, of coming out of the coma. So that would have been within eight days of surgery. I came home, and um, I took it very slowly, of course, in the beginning. And then I started to exercise more and exercise more. And now I walk, I don't know, 4,500, 5,000 steps a day. and which is not a lot for you New Yorkers, but but for Californians, that's a lot. <laughs> no, for New York and, and, New York I, I and COVID, it is. But I can I can go hiking. I can do I can do strenuous things. I'm I'm perfectly normal. It's amazing. Wow, wow. it's amazing. I've just had to be very careful during this COVID period yes. because when you do have a transplant, they're afraid of rejection. And whenever they talk to me about rejection, I'd always say, hey, look, I've been an actor for 45 years. I thrive <laughs> on rejection. Are you kidding me? So you <laughs> so mean there's, I, there's that's a, what I live for. There's a point at any time that it can, your body can automatically just start to reject it. Yeah. Yeah. So they have to suppress your immune system. So I have like zero immune system and I have to be really careful about the COVID out there. and. uh Staying in the house and not going out drive much. I drive my convertible a lot. We go to the beach once a week, but when we go to the beach, we're never more than twenty feet away from anybody, you know. And um, so we play it very safe, very safe. But what about the, the common cold and the recovery? Oh, oh, I beg your pardon. What about like the you know? You said you had no immune system. So what about like catching the common cold or you know, the flu or something oh, like that? Oh yeah, yeah. I can. Oh man, I yeah. I got to watch that because I can catch that really easily. I'm not a boy in a bubble, but I'm, um, I'm cautious. And I never was before. 
Heck, I'd kiss anybody. But would it be, I mean, if you got the common cold, would it be something that you can just get the cold and recover from without any detriment to your heart? Uh, no, it'll be no detriment to my heart. No, no detriment to my heart whatsoever. No. Okay. Um, I, they're just afraid of uh, infection. They're right. afraid of bacteria getting in there. And so uh, a cold. There's a noise coming through the background, like maybe something. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had a couple of cold. It was just a nervous habit. I've had a couple of colds, um, but recovered about six months after the transplant. I would say I started to feel like a normal human being. Uh, and I must say for your listeners, because they people often have this question, do I feel any different? Do I feel any vibes or any DNA or anything happening from the organs I received? And the answer is a very flat no in my case. Um, other people might have other experiences or think they're having other experiences, but I would rather still be the person that I was before I got my new heart. And that's the person I am. And, uh, and, and by the way, and, you know, and I try to laugh about it. And, you know, in my book, The Tin Man Diaries, uh, you know, it's full of a lot of laughs, but people say, you know, laughter is the best medicine. Well, I, Julian, whoever said laughter is the best medicine has never had a morphine drip. There's nothing like it. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yes. You want to talk about good medicine. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, Tell us about your book, um, not just about, you know, you know where, where is it available on Amazon? And uh, Oh, uh, my book, The Tin Man Diaries, yeah. has gotten a lot of nice reviews, and it's available on Amazon, yes, for the whopping price of $9.99. Maybe, <laughs> no, I think it's gone up to $11. They raised it to $11.99. Okay. On me. So it's, yeah, it, and they, I want you to... Um, I, I, I mean, I know we, we talked about so much that was, um, really entertaining and really a privilege. And, um, but I know oh, that come on. we go past the, Thank we go you. past the jokes and there's a serious message here about, um, mm -hmm. organ donors and organ donorship that we need to get across to many people. And, and you may have, when you and I first spoke, you even gave me thought for it. Cause you know, I get, every new driver's license and I, and I throw it in my wallet and, you know, I never even look at the back to fill out the, you know, the organ donor thing. And, and just the other night, it's funny because my wife said to me, uh, she got her new license maybe last week and she turned mm -hmm. over the back and she said she was reading it. And I said, Oh, you know what? I don't get Jamie coming on. You know, it's, it shows all about, you know, being an organ donor. And, and I, it only, it only became something that I focused on because of my, uh, previous conversation oh. with you. So I would like you as part oh, of... Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'd like you as part of this show to say something, you know, comedic or not, although I, th I don't think you could help no, the comedic part, but that's say wonderful. something about organ donorship to my audience. I think one of the most important things that we can do as citizens of the world is, of course, love each other and recycle. Those two things go together because by loving each other, we help humanity. And by recycling, we help the earth. But 
I think we've ignored over the years one of the most recyclable things in the world, and that is the human body. 87% of Americans recycle. Only 52% of Americans fill out their organ donorship card. As a result, if those 48% had filled in their organ donorship card, we wouldn't have the problem of 22 people a day dying in the hospital because the organs they need aren't available because somebody didn't fill out their organ donorship card. You're not going to know it, but you are going to save eight lives. You might be passed away and gone, but you can enhance the lives of a hundred people with your skin tissue, your tendons, and I think one of the most vital things, corneas. You can give sight to the blind. It's a donation that really requires no sacrifice. And it's recycling because <laughs> I'll never forget my donor. He will live on with me forever. Yeah, I couldn't ask for any more powerful message than that as a as a as a uh, sort of um last last word to my audience. Good. Um I I again the 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 thanks that I want to give you is is really incredible because um not only for the message, not only for provoking, you know, my own thoughts about organ donorship and me discussing it with others, but also for mm -hmm. the laughter and for the stories and um <laughs> And even though I never met one of those celebrities, you know, I've met you now, so I kind of feel like royalty too. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> there you go. Sure, yeah. There you and, go. Yeah. and so, um, I, 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 first of all, want to say thank you for you know graciously agreeing to be a guest on my show. I want to well, thank you. Thank you for your 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 the, the amount of laughter, the best medicine that you've given to back to to this world and to all your your the audience that's seen Let's you heard so. you laughter is the best medicine yes, yes. and and i want to thank you for um your 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 crusade in terms of you know getting more donors or people to sign up for being donors and um i i want to wish you the very best with that you know very young heart of yours and um thank you and i 46 Yes, and I, and I, <laughs> you know, you could, you, maybe you'll change your driver's license and you put that for age and see what they say, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see, if, you know, I just need the rest of the parts to last as long as the heart and liver will. Well, I mean, you know, we yeah. have, we, we live yeah, in, we'll a, we live in a world with so much stress that you have so many people that are dropping from heart attacks that, you know, maybe you got the best uh, part of it all. You've got the new heart and you've got the old laughter and together. Yeah, maybe that's the perfect, you know, perfect pill. So keep them laughing. Well, check out Mac and Jamie. Check out the Tin Man Diaries, and uh, check out my daughter Haley Kiyoko, and uh, my wife Sarah Kawahara, who is an ice skating choreographer, and uh, did Blades of Glory and I Tanya. To mention a, a few, and. Uh, you know something? 
It has been a profound privilege to do your show tonight. I didn't realize what was coming my way, but I really, really enjoy talking to you, Julian. And, and I felt likewise, like you really heard me. Likewise. Thank um, you. So thank you. So thank I you like so you. much, Jamie. All right, sir. All right. God bless. Take care. You too. say a very special thank you to my guest Jamie Alcroft. I'm sure that everybody who listens to this episode will truly enjoy it. His laughter and his zest for life having gone through something that's so important in preserving and saving life. I want to thank my audience as usual for your continued support reminding you always that you know check out my show on any of your favorite podcast apps or head over to the website www.247realtalk.net We've got everything on there for you including notes about the guests and each and every episode If you'd like to leave me a message or if you'd like to be a guest on the show feel free to send me an email at podcast at 247realtalk.net That's podcast at 247realtalk.net Until the next time remember to laugh Take care of yourselves and each other.